I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. This is an exclusive audio podcast edition of The Open Mind. I'm honored to host Bill Bishop, the editor and author of the Sinocism newsletter, a veteran China observer with whom I've uh, communicated over the course of the the pandemic and its emergence. Bill, it's an honor to have you on. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Bill, for the life of me, I can't understand why from the outset of this crisis, it didn't get the same attention that SARS did. I mean, I was a younger cub at the time, but I very well remember it on the cover of Time magazine, well before the body count reached anywhere near what it did in China or ultimately in the United States. And it was also misrepresented as flu in a way that the earlier coverage of SARS 1.0 was not. And, 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 you know, it was considered the next pandemic in a way. And you would think that we wouldn't be so complacent and wouldn't be, um, have the, that kind of amnesia. It seemed like we were better prepared to address this when the first SARS came out, but it was misrepresented both in terms of substance and in terms of scope. Uh, is that the way you see it? Well, it's, it's really quite interesting and quite tragic because it, it, in many ways it was, it was covered much more uh, openly and aggressively inside China in Chinese media. And certainly, you know, the way the Chinese government reacted in, um, in later, the later part of January when they, when they really decided to be more transparent, not fully, but more transparent and to, and to you know, they, sh- they shut off at a, a city of 11 million people. And it dominated the the media, the propaganda coverage inside China. And there was tons and tons of reporting in foreign media and Western media about what was going on in China, reporters in Wuhan. And, you know, the way the Chinese government was reacting, it was something I, I wrote repeatedly in my newsletter because, you know, again, there's always issues with Chinese, the official Chinese statistics um, was, you know, watch what they're doing, not necessarily what they're saying. And the, the way they reacted, you know, they basically shut down the economy. They, they, they cordoned off not just the city of Wuhan, but an entire, basically the entire province of 60 plus million people was pretty clear. They didn't think it was just the flu. And so why then there was such a disconnect and such a mishandled reaction here in the U.S., but also in, um, in Europe is is something that I'm not sure, I don't quite understand why, other than maybe this kind of sense of it, it can't happen here. It's just, it's somewhere over there and we are going to be much better prepared. You know, you look at how, for example, Taiwan reacted and Taiwan with its, and Singapore and Hong Kong, and because of their experiences with SARS, um, they were much faster and much more effective, especially Taiwan, I think is probably the best in the world at managing the, the response to the, um, to, to this current, current pandemic and they got it. And so what happened here in terms of media coverage, in terms of the way we've got this, you know, obviously very, um, divided media landscape here in the U S and increasingly acrimonious. And then also though, you know, I, I have people I talk to who work in the White House and work in the U.S. government. It's not like, and people who focus on China and people who, who, who had been in China during SARS who are now in the administration, it's not like there were people in the administration who were very aware in January and early February about how bad this was in China. And so how we ended up where we are in the U.S. and being so unprepared 
is again it's it's tragic and it's a national it's a national scandal that i think you know once we get through this we'll probably see something like the 911 commission but maybe even um more damning given that you know this wasn't a sneak attack there we 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 plenty of people did see this coming and it's not as if even with what what might have been concealing the actual numbers in china there were images that were verified on social media both chinese and american platforms to the extent allowable in the country and those images reflected the severity of the problem and that was in january and february and you know so we saw and we chose at least the government chose not to believe that it could happen here but i just want to nail you down on the original stars reporting is it isn't it am i wrong in remembering the serious the seriousness with which we viewed the pandemic then or the potent the pandemic potential then cover of time um real concern even though the body count hadn't real concern from the american media even though there hadn't been the fatalities yet and real curiosity and scientific literacy about the extent that that problem was possible i mean am i wrong in saying that the american media for the first month that it emerged treated the original SARS um, more seriously than COVID? So, you know, I'm not actually sure because, um, you know, that was 17 years ago, thereabouts. There, it, it, it definitely, SARS got a ton of coverage. You know, there wasn't social media back then. I mean, there, you can't, you, you just can't sort of see, look at Twitter, look at, look at Facebook, look at some of these images we've been getting since January and not think that there was also a massive coverage of what was going on in Wuhan. I mean, for example, though, and one thing, you know, one of the, the deputy national security advisor, Matt Pottinger, he was a journalist in China covering SARS. And he actually, he told me a story where he actually had, you know, there was this finally what broke SARS and in, into the real sort of the, the magnitude where it really broke open was when there was this very brave PLA, People's Liberation Army doctor who leaked that they were covering up all these cases. And, and according to Matt, he actually had the story, but his, I think he was at Reuters at the time, um, his editors required some additional verification. And so another reporter broke it. So, and he's now, you know, he's been one of the people overseeing, you know, trying to oversee the response. And so there's no lack of understanding about SARS and, you know, this virus and the damage it can do. It's, it's more like, I mean, you definitely saw it on um, powerful media platforms like like Fox News and the Fox News universe where you had very powerful and influential people for quite some time who were dismissing it as the flu it wasn 't just on Fox News but certainly I think there there is there, there was a a pretty consistent messaging through a lot of February that this was you know it 's the flu the flu kills tens of thousands and what 's the big deal so from your perspective now you know, how much attention is going to be paid within China and globally on the origin, which has fascinated people, you know, and it's not because of the culpability question, at least insofar as I'm concerned, it's about the responsibility to civil society to best as possible understand how this emerged. Right. And so, you know, there, there, there still is no... There, there is no good conclusive evidence about sort of how exactly this, this, this virus jumped from whatever animal host or intermediate host there was to humans. You know, SARS, the original SARS took several years 
before they traced it, actually the, the original source to a, a cave in Southwest China in Yunnan province, a specific cave and bats in that cave. And so it could be a number of years before there is actual conclusive evidence of the, of the exact source. That said, there's really no question and, and senior, very influential Chinese doctors have said, you know, look, obviously it started here in terms of the first human cases. And, you know, then what, what you've had though, is you've had a, 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 at various, various actors, um, including inside the Chinese government, pushing this, a dis, really a disinformation campaign to try and effectively say that maybe it didn't even, the first cases weren't even here in China. And, and that's a, you know, China, I think is, you know, they are, trying very hard now to position themselves as the sort of, you know, the responsible major power who had did everything they could to fight this virus, bought the, you know, bought the world time, and now is provider of, of public goods around, you know, personal perfect, protective equipment, masks, gowns, et cetera, to try and, and, and aid to help countries globally fight this pandemic. The challenge for China, and you, you can understand why they're trying to do this, because you know, this thing is is just wreaking devastation, both in terms of health and in terms of the financial markets and economies and jobs. I mean, it's it's destroying millions and millions of lives. And so, of course, they don't they don't want to be um, they don't want to be somehow blamed for um, not doing what they could have done at the beginning to to keep this from becoming a global pandemic. Um, I think when you when you look at sort of how nasty this kind of dispute or debate over the virus or the origin of the virus has become, a lot of it really stems from the very aggressive um, group of folks and specifically one um, person in the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs named Zhao Lijian, who started pushing this idea that maybe the U.S. Army actually introduced the virus into China in October when in October Wuhan hosted the World Army Games. And that sort of, and that claim or that that conspiracy theory was pushed on Twitter, um, it, you know, to the to the entire world. It was also pushed inside the heavily censored Chinese internet. And to this day, I mean, you actually, I know plenty of Chinese contacts and some in-laws who think the U.S. actually created the virus and the U.S. is to blame. And so, you know, it, it's a it's a really tragic distraction where we do need to figure out a way to come together and jointly fight this virus. Once we're through it, though, you know, I think there is going to be increasing pressure to um, obviously learn the lessons of how to prevent it from from occurring again. But also, you know, the fact that the Chinese Communist Party has been uh, seeming to be pushing so hard to try and absolve themselves of any culpability that is, has sparked a real reaction here in DC and in, and in other capitals too in the Western world to want to then actually maybe hold them more accountable than perhaps it would have been if they just kind of not been so aggressively pushing this dis disinformation. And whether or not they would have um, engaged in that conspiracy making um, if the, the Senator uh, Tom Cotton um, from Arkansas had had not, uh, along with some China hawks, um, engaged in speculation himself about the idea that this was a bioweapon. Now, scientists have said incontrovertibly that it was not bioengineered at this point. And that is the factual consensus. But what has emerged is the possibility that this had escaped 
from a lab or had been contaminated through studies of those bats in Wuhan or elsewhere. And so unfortunately, those two things, right, they got conflated, the idea of a bioweapon and the idea of lab malfunction or error or someone just getting infected studying something. And the latter, the idea of lab error or malfunction, uh, that is still a real possibility in terms of how it could have emerged in China, right? No, it is. And I mean, of course, of course, the Chinese deny it. And, and you know, I think that, that that's something that um, from the folks I've talked to, um, it, it's, it's, it's considered a real possibility in, in parts of the U.S. government, although I don't think there's, there's, sort of, there's any sort of dispositive um, evidence or intelligence at this point to say 100% that's what happened. You know, the Chinese did a couple of curious things um, in, I think it was in February, where they, they, they started talking at the Xi Jinping level, pushing, you know, up, upgrading the biosafety law. And then also, I think it was the Ministry of Science Technology put out a circular about improving um, biolab safety. And it was just a very, it was one of those things where it's like, really, you're going to do that now? That just basically fuels a lot of folks who think that maybe something happened at a lab. I, I have no idea. And, you know, I think at this point, again, that shouldn't be the focus. The focus should be how do we get a vaccine? How do we get therapeutics? How do we, how do we restart the world without more, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of more people dying? Right. But eventually, that these are things that feed into once we're done with this, how, how does this get sort of what's the historical conclusion and whether it, and is there going to be some push for um, an ac- accountability, which is a very fraught and legally difficult, if not impossible, um, uh, uh, effort. And so, you know, but the thing is, is where you have like Senator Tom Cotton and folks in, in, in certain parts of the media pushing this, this idea, um, it, you know, the, 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 the way this, this foreign ministry, he's actually one of the Chinese foreign ministry spokespersons, pro, you know, prosecuted this idea that the U.S. brought it. I mean, that's very different. I mean, the Chinese have always been pretty good about understanding that the U.S. government doesn't really control what senators and Congress people say and kind of being able to discount it. Well, they're not happy about it, but they, it, 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 they understand sometimes how things can get sort of more over the years. You had sort of more hawkish noises coming out of the hill. This was a, you know, a serving official of the Chinese government who's in the, he's a diplomat and he's actually one of the spokespeople and he's been trying to say it was his personal account, but it's not as, it's, he wouldn't have said this if he didn't think somebody above him in the system, the Chinese system thought this was an okay thing to do. Right. And so it, it, it's not, I don't think it's fully equivalent or fully apples to apples to say what Tom Cotton did. Right. Regardless, we're now in a very unfortunate position where, you know, the U.S.-China relationship has been very fraught and, and on a, a downward trajectory for a number of years. You know, obviously the, the Trump administration, during the Trump administration, it's gotten even worse, although I think it was, it was headed this direction regardless of who won the 2016 election, would have been maybe handled differently, but the end result might not have been that different. Um, we had a pause or sort of a temporary floor in the relationship in the middle of January with the signing of this phase one deal where it felt like for a little while at least some of the worst aspects of the, of the, 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 the more tense-filled parts of the relationship could at least be put on hold for a while. Um, that obviously has completely fallen apart. And so we're now, and I wrote about this a couple weeks ago, 
and I, I think plenty of other people would agree, you know, this feels like we're, we're at the worst, um, the U.S.-China relations are at their, in their worst state since relationship was normalized at the end of the 1970s. And there doesn't seem to be any actors within the, either system who are in a position to turn this around, especially as here in the U.S., you know, we're heading into, and in China, we're heading into deep economic downturns and are struggling with the human costs and human toll from this horrible pandemic. And any politician in any system, when you're dealing with that kind of a domestic crisis, I think the natural reaction is to find somebody or something external to blame. Right. And certainly, as we're heading, we're less than seven months away from the presidential election here, we're already seeing, I think, at least on the Republic, on the GOP side, a very clear playbook of blame China for all this stuff. The economic downturn, the human carnage. And, you know, there was the first ad I think came out yesterday against um, uh, former Vice President Biden, which was all about Biden and his China ties and weak on China. And so we're just, I think the next few months are going to get increasingly ugly here in the U.S. around just the general discourse about China. And that's going to make the relationship even more fraught, but I think also potentially complicate any, um, any real concrete government, sort of federal government to um, Chinese government efforts to really cooperate on how to fight this pandemic. Right. And just to close the loop on the origin piece, you know, the, the alternative to lab malfunction as in uh, transmission over a wet market or through commerce, you know, they've also, at least the Chinese government ostensibly has said they need to check themselves on that with new protocols in place. I'm again more interested in, in, you know, for the protection of civil society beyond this pandemic, what it is China is going to do to be a more responsible actor here. In, um, and and it, it's a combination of lab safety. It's, uh, and maybe it isn't a smart idea to be bringing bats that are known to have these diseases from caves and studying them in labs, especially without protection, if they're not having adequate protection. But these are the questions, you know, and there is really no global body, is there, Bill, that can, that can hold China accountable even in the wake of the pandemic, right? I mean... No, and, and you know, the thing is, like, wet markets, right? I think Ebola, they think, came from eating bushmeat, right? And so it's this whole... Um, and, you know, China has, you know, the, one, the other, one of the other reactions they've had is, is they've fast-forwarded a new... I forget the exact name, but it's basically a new law to limit the consumption of wildlife. So they're, they're, they say now at the, at the top level, they're, they're going to much more strictly regulate what animals people can and can't eat and what they can traffic, what, could they, what they can trade. And so, um, you know, you would have thought they would have they learned the lesson after SARS, where SARS, I think, you know, came from a bat, which, which affected, I think it was a civet cat. Um, which somebody ate, and that's where that's where it started. We again, we don't know exactly where if it started from an animal someone ate, or but the assumption is probably it started in this market in Wuhan. Um, and 
So, but there's also, I know lately here, there's been this push that China has to close their wet markets. The reality is wet markets are a part of life in, in most cities, many cities around the world. They don't all have wildlife, like crazy wildlife. They have vegetables, they have fish. You know, you, we used to go get out, you know, get our, we lived in Beijing, you, we could go, you get, get your beef or your chicken. You know, you don't have to go there and get your raccoon or your badger or your civet cat or your, um, you know, snakes. That, 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 that part can be taken out of wet market without sort of saying, if the Chinese don't close their wet markets, then therefore they're being irresponsible. So on this point you make about the future, what, what's next with respect to the president, President Trump, Vice President Biden, and our relationship with China. Um, in what direction do you predict this is going to go? Um, if you're saying that the GOP playbook will be applying the kind of anti-Muslim xenophobia onto the Chinese, um, we know the track record of the president is to admire authoritarianism by tweet, um, and press conference uh, as much as sometimes in the policies he's implementing. And he did say um, that the Chinese government were in, in Xi Jinping, were, they were doing a good job. And so in response to the ad that you described, um, the Biden and, and his allies are saying, well, you've been fawning over China even as you uh, undertook this, this uh, trade war and uh, you know, the, the tariff uh, situation. So I, I guess, where does it go from here? Where do you think it's going to go from here, Bill? Uh, I'm very worried, you know, and I think that I mean, in many ways, President Trump himself is the biggest moderating factor on the U.S.-China relationship right now um, in the in the government. And um, that <laughs> that's an interesting um, conclusion to come to, to put it that way. I think, though, that when you look at, um, you know, the the just the the general, um, I think, xenophobia and, and the tendency towards racism and xenophobia in any, really in any society when you're faced with this crisis, um, like, like the scale of which, you know, we're dealing with now, you add in that the election year, you add in that the fact that the president, you know, President Trump, and the GOP, you know, I think they, they see um, re-election is maybe less likely than it was a few months ago because of the economic downturn and and therefore again a, a, a logical pathway political pathway is to blame China I think you know we do run the risk of stirring up um, a lot of nasty passions in this country and you know we have to remember our history of anti-chinese racism in the US is terrible you know we had the Chinese exclusion act it's it's a really scary thing and it's not, you know, it, it's, you know, you, this, is, this is really a disturbing split where you, people who want to criticize the Chinese Communist Party for the way they've dealt with the virus and the, and the, the way they covered up the beginning, you know, and parts of the U.S. media, I think people would say the left, you know, you're accused of playing it, you know, you're, of, of, of basically stirring up racism by being anti-China. Um, and then on the right, if you, if you try and say, well, we we should be critical of the Chinese, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party's reaction, but we have to be careful about stirring up racism and anti-Asian, anti-Chinese racism. You know, oh, you're playing identi identity politics, you're playing into the CCP's hands because they like to use this kind of racism to, to basically, the, the claims of racism to, to squelch any opposition. It's, it's really, it's a really difficult place. And, you know, I've been trying to work with some of my, my subscribers and readers and our various like discussion groups and message boards to try and figure out how we chart a middle course where 
we have a reasonable, rational policy towards China and the Chinese Communist Party um, and a rational view of this pandemic and the origins um, without also kind of going crazy on either side. And, and it's extremely, quite honestly, I don't know if we can do it. And, you know, I, I will you, say, though, yeah. sorry, there's one thing I'll say yeah, is, is this kind of xenophobia and racism, it's not just the US, it's also on the Chinese side. You're seeing a lot of anti-foreigner sentiment, anti-American sentiment, anti-foreigner sentiment, anti-anti, there's, there's just a lot of stuff that's bubbling. Because right now what the Chinese are doing or Chinese are dealing with and what they're saying is all their new cases, basically, that they announce officially are what they call imported cases, meaning they're cases that are from people who are coming from overseas. Now, the fact is, is most of those imported cases are actually PRC citizens returning to China. But there have been some foreign citizens and, you know, they, they've, they've, they've suspended entry to pretty much any foreigner who even had a valid visa or residence permit. They've told diplomatic missions to not send new personnel for the next month plus. Right. And so they're also stirring up this kind of sense that now it's a foreign disease, right? We've conquered it here in China, and now any future outbreaks are going to be cut because the rest of the world couldn't handle it, and they're coming back to China. Two more questions. Um, with respect to Biden and Trump, if you're Biden, how do you gameplay this successfully? Both, I mean, in terms of the internal domestic dynamic, in a way that prepares you to have a better relationship with China, uh, but also prepares you to, uh, to engage in the hand-to-hand combat with Trump. Uh, and then ultimately, if you win the election, then have a, a better stage to, to have diplomacy with China than Trump uh, did. Well, I think your your earlier point where, you know, and, and I think this is something we're going to, we're going to, that the Biden folks have already started pushing and we'll see a lot more of it is, you know, President Trump's own comments about, um, uh, about, you know, his praising Xi Jinping. And, and, and so it's sort of hard to argue that, you, you know, you, you can find clips of anything and tweets of anything where he's praising his good friend Xi. So how can, how can Trump really be tough on China if he's talking about his good friend Xi Jinping, right? I'm sure you'll see some ad almost exactly like that. Um, and ultimately, you know, it, 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 it is a, you know, China, China always is, there's always nasty China, China rhetoric in U.S. elections over the last few cycles. It, it never really matters. And, you know, I think you, you certainly saw it before the pandemic. I think some of the, even the Democratic debates didn't even talk about China. And so um, there's lots of nasty rhetoric. Generally, it doesn't really become that important. But in this case, obviously, because of the pandemic, it could be a much more significant um, have a much more significant role. I think if you're Biden, you know, you, you, I, you have to be, I think, realistic and, and say that the Chinese government, you know, they, they mishandled the original outbreak. There's no question. And they, they allowed it to become much worse than it should have been. However, guess what? We also had time to prepare. And you know what? We fumbled that response. And who, who was in charge of that response? President Trump. Right. And so that's that I think has to be and whether, you know, whether or not that that will get through to voters, I mean, I, I don't know. Um, so, in so, terms of. Yeah. Sorry. Go, OK. Yeah. Go no, 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 please. Well, I was just going to say in terms of sort of then if it become if, 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 if Biden wins and he becomes President Biden, you know, an improved relationship with China. I mean, the one thing I will say is any any talk of returning to sort of pre-Trump pre-Trump administration relationship with China, I think is, is a loser politically because, um, you know, I'll be honest with you, 
in many ways, the, the diagnosis of the Trump administration of the issues with China and the U.S.-China relationship, I think, are generally correct. The diagnosis, the prescription, not so much, right? But generally, you know, the the, the relationship and, and the, you know, the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party are a, um, there are a lot of problems that they create for the world and for the U.S. that we have to address in ways that we weren't really addressing um, in the last few administrations. Which leads so me I think, to my sorry, go final ahead. Yeah, go ahead. for you, Bill, okay. which is, at the end of the day, uh, does Xi Jinping and, and, you know, the most important loyalists there, his allies, um, view um, Trump as a buffoon um, and um, that, you know, with respect to the tariff situation, that, you know, sure, it's, it's, it's hurt the U.S., it's hurt China in, in certain respects, but at the end of the day, they want to get back to the negotiating table with um, someone who is, um, as a, as sort of has more credibility, or do they, do they want um, the appearance of, of uh, a lack of, of uh, credibility from, the, from Americans? Uh, they view much like Putin is considered an influence in wanting to destabilize America, support Trump's reelection. Do they want him to win reelection or not? So that's a great question. And there's, there's as best I can pick up on, there's debate inside, um, inside the system as to, as to whether or not Trump is a net positive or a net negative. He's certainly been, he certainly caused them a ton of headaches in the U.S.-China relationship, which is still their most important relationship. And he's, he's, he's dealt with them in ways that they're just not used to from a U.S. president and have, that have caused them a lot of grief and uh, heart and sort of heartburn. Um, and, and have put a lot more pressure on their economy than they really wanted to see, given, given that they're fairly perilous state of their economy to begin with. But as you point out, he's also been in many ways a gift um, on the global stage in terms of um, the way he's stressed U.S. alliances, he's pushed back on U.S. allies, especially in the Asia-Pacific region, which is where, you know, the, the primary focus for China right now is to figure out how they can how they can weaken the U.S. alliance system in the Asia-Pacific region to, def- to effectively start prying off or putting enough, finding enough cracks or fissures in U.S. relationships with, say, South Korea um, and, and uh, you know, Japan around the, and other countries around the region to, to effectively let Asia become sort of the China's, China's, um, what's the right word? China's not their neighbor. It is their neighbor, but basically China's, China is the, is the prime hegemon in the Asia region as opposed to the U S is how they would see it. They wouldn't say it that way, but that's really what they want to see. They, China should run Asia is how they see it. And they don't right now because of the U S alliance system. And so Trump has been, I think, they see him as a gift when it comes to that and when it comes to, you know, the just stuff around Huawei and the way it's stressing the five eyes uh, relationship. And so again, to the long answer to your question, but this, this, the, the, the real answer is I think it's a mixed bag. And so they're not really sure. I also think though, that unlike the Russians, the Chinese are a lot more cautious and they don't want to be caught doing anything that looks like they're trying to influence the U S election one way or the other. And, and they, do they also, being more cautious, see the impact of reinfected people populating their country again and the fact that incompetence here could lead to some devastating outcomes there, even you know, unintentionally? 
No, absolutely. I think they're, you're, what, you're, what you're seeing is they're, they've realized and, and, and you're starting to see more urgency and concern in, in the public statements is they, they realize, you know, they, they've been struggling with how to fight the, fight, the, fight the virus and then get their economy restarted. Um, and they've realized now because of the way the pandemic has spread globally and especially in Europe and the U.S., that there's, there's been a total collapse in global demand and they still, you know, their economy still relies fairly heavily on exports to, um, for growth. And so they're looking at probably negative GDP growth this year and that causes all sorts of problems inside their system and their economy. And so they, you know, on the one hand, it's useful that the U.S. looks like it's been so incompetent in dealing with this virus because it, it again, helps China potentially look like a more like it helps it, it gives more credibility to their system and the way they govern as well as gives them more credibility globally the flip side is the u.s and and italy and spain you know and uk not being you know having way more cases than china now officially and and again like you said the risk of these this continuing to spread globally and come back into china until, unless they keep their borders shut causes them all sorts of other problems in terms of, again, how can they really reopen and get their economic growth back if they have to remain closed because there's the virus is all over the world. And so it's, you, a, it's, would, a, yeah. it's a, I mean, it is, it is, again, you know, I'm 51. There has been no crisis like this in my lifetime in the global. Yeah, you would think, Not Bill, even close. That, yeah, yeah, that's, you would think, Bill, that, um, you know, both the American people and the Chinese people would want a fresh start. And that is to say they would embrace the idea of, of Biden uh, as the next negotiator and, and helping stabilize the health situation, if not democracy. But then again, you on Twitter said this was the most perilous time for, for the Chinese infrastructure since uh, Tiananmen in, in 1989. And, um, it's not clear. This is this is my last last question. It's not clear there was ever any potential for a fresh start for the Chinese people to emerge from this pandemic uh, as a freer people. Um, but I did want you just to weigh in if you still kind of stood by that comment of how perilous it was, and why ultimately um, the the Chinese government were able to save face enough that there was no destabilization, no evident destabilization um, at the top of the government? Uh, it's only been three months. It's too early to tell. I mean, quite honestly, I think that a month ago, I, you could certainly make a pretty co coaching case that actually the, the, the Xi Jinping and the party leadership came out looking better and stronger than before this crisis because they had handled it so relatively well. Um, now, though, however, I think the the collapse in global demand and the stresses that's placing on the Chinese economy um, are potentially leading to all sorts of additional pressures inside the Chinese uh, in the size of the Chinese economy, the Chinese system that um, again will be playing themselves out over the next weeks or months. And so, it, it and certainly, folks I talk to and 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 who've who've been spending a lot of time in looking at China or or are Chinese. It, it, there's no question in their minds that there's an incredible amount of stress inside the Chinese system right now um, that, you know, there's been things building for a while and Xi Jinping has been pretty good about managing them, but this kind of exogenous shock that just keeps getting worse is, you know, I think, like I said earlier, it just, it, 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 I would, 
I would still bet that they're going to, Xi Jinping and the Communist Party are going to get through this. Um, and it won't become like 1989. They did get through 1989, but it was pretty ugly. But it, it's still too early to tell because there's just, there's just a lot of, you know, this, this pandemic is not over. I think far from it. Right, and right. so we're, we're still, it's still too early to tell. Yeah, I mean, in, in the nature of the revolt that you were imagining was, uh, you know, not an uprising from the people, but some sort of uh, coup within, you know, the potential for well, mutiny if, if uh, or, or uh, a new leader to emerge if it, if it had Well, this sort of, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, the idea of a coup, but it was more of a, um, you know, more of a of a sort of a, a a kind of a checking of some of the power that Xi Jinping has accumulated. Um, that again, I think that's unlikely. Yeah. Um, but you know, look, the the Chinese system is so opaque; it's more opaque now than it was five years ago. And you know, Xi Jinping has accumulated a lot of power. He, but with that power, also it's much harder to blame someone else if something goes wrong. You know, and there, but look. Inside the system, I'll say I'll say the one thing in terms of like popular discontent, the the propaganda system in the censorship system, they've done a pretty good job of making a lot of people think it's all America's fault. And they usually do. But in this case, it's it's and and so, you know, there's there's a lot of anger towards America um, that's been been stirred up and allowed to um, allowed to grow. And some of it is organic and some of it's not. Um, and so it's not clear if there really is a crisis, a bigger crisis is in China, if it's going to be blaming, blaming Xi Jinping and the Communist Party, or if it's going to be blaming some, an external enemy. And was it, finally, was it ever clear who next in command or would be? No, there, there's no, and that's one of the reasons why it's, it's hard to, it's, it's difficult to envision because there isn't, it's not clear. Um, then again, you know, things happen, but um, it, it really comes back to, you know, if, if, if there's mass unemployment in China, if the GDP growth is negative, all sorts of strange fissures and pressures can sort of pop out in different ways that could cause a lot of issues for um, the Communist Party. That said, I wouldn't bet on, um, I wouldn't bet on, you know, sort of the collapse of the party like we saw, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union. I think that's, that's a pretty hard scenario I mean, never want to say never, but I, that's still a pretty, pretty low probability scenario in, in my mind. Bill Bishop, writer and creator of the Cynicism uh, newsletter and expert China observer, thank you so much for being on with me. Thanks for having me. It was a real honor.